So um, I just I've been gone for a couple of weeks. I just wanted to apologize. I totally forgot the last time I was here that I was going to be gone, so I didn't mention it. Um, um, and I was planning on doing a four-week series on the Brahma Viharas, and I'd taught about metta or loving kindness that night. And um, so I've been away for a couple of weeks, and generally when I'm away, I like to check in a little more rather than just come in with a talk. So I'm going to delay the next talk, which will be next week, on compassion from the Brahma Viharas. And I'd just like to do questions and answers tonight. I'd like to see what's up for people or what's happening in your practice or what's the most vital question that you might have in terms of meditation, dharma, integration, liberation, freedom, suffering, etc. And to consider it for a moment that uh, what I'd like to encourage is that each person here has at least one question. And we won't get to them all. But um, but it, it really to think about if, if you have one question, what would it be? What would be the most important question you could ask or the most alive or juicy question that you could ask? And we'll see if nobody raises their hands and I'll start just calling on people. We'll see what your question is. <laughs> How you cultivate? If you actually don't have a particularly strong desire for something skillful, and you'd like to have more, <laughs> <laughs> cultivating skillful desires, I assume means you somehow go from the state of having a relatively low desire for something skillful to having a more desire for it. And I'm wondering if you have any practical tips on how okay. to accomplish that. Okay, good. So the questions about the the realm of of desire skillful, unskillful, and then what does it mean to cultivate skillful desire? Um, well, I think the first part that's really important is to look and see, well, what are your desires? Really to look and really to see what are the desires without even labeling them skillful or unskillful. Well, what does your heart desire? What does your heart yearn for? You know, what do you what do you want? What do you really want? Especially taking off the whole um, possible judgment about skillful or unskillful to start, but just being open. Let's 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 just start with an open slate and say, what do you want? And to really see and allow the wanting to be here first. And then secondly, begin to look at the question of skillful and unskillful. That's a, for me, that's a secondary question. The first is, is um, a question of allowing the desire itself and learning how to be present with desire. And of course, that's a skillful practice to do. 
It's skillful to learn how to be with desire without judging the desire. Because the tricky part about skillful and unskillful is often it gets overlaid with judgment. Skillful is good, unskillful is bad. And that's not exactly what the words mean. They actually just mean skillful and unskillful, but we often overlay desire with a moralistic, Judeo-Christian kind of valence to it. Um, And it's not so much how it's thought about in Buddhism. It's just desire. It's just normal. It's human. The question is, what, what's your deepest desire, desire? What's the most profound desires we have? What do we really want? I mean, is your most profound desire for an ice cream? Or is that more of a not, not as profound desire? You know, it's a, it's a desire and it could be really good to get some nice dark chocolate ice cream with a scoop of banana, vanilla on top and a sugar cone and um, some sprinkles, maybe a few M&Ms. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's a, that's a relatively not a big deal desire. And actually, it's not skillful or unskillful. It's just the desire that, you know, will give you a certain amount of happiness and well-being. So, so already I'm throwing in something else when I say it'll give you a certain amount of happiness and well-being. The way desire is assessed is does it bring, what, does it bring long-term happiness and well-being? That's the way to begin to assess skillful, unskillful. It's not a moralistic assessment. It's saying, here's what I want, which is the highest desire, which is happiness and well-being. What leads to that? And then to bring all other desires into the service of that. So does that begin to answer the question, then how to cultivate it? So what do you want? First, you have to tell me what you want, and then I can tell you how to cultivate it, maybe. <laughs> One example, I'd like to experience the feeling of loving kindness more of the time. Great. Okay. So go do a loving kindness retreat. That would be a skillful... You, you've got a desire, and how to, how to nourish that desire, how to bring that desire to fruition, then you have to act. So now you could go read the book, Sharon Salzberg's book on loving kindness, a wonderful book. Start practicing it in your daily life. And then start, um, also start to look at where it might already be there. Tell me something you love. Pardon? My mother. Your mother. So there may be some feelings of loving kindness for your mother. So you want to start to recognize it when it's there. Like maybe if you think about your mother, there's a certain feeling that comes, a state, a a state of being. And you can start to, oh, that's loving kindness. Or maybe you're walking in the marina and you see a mother and a child playing and you see the love between them and it kind of touches your heart, you might be feeling loving kindness at that point. 
And so there's a number of ways to start to, um, and this is really applicable to any part of the Dharma. Wherever you're interested, if you're interested in loving kindness or in compassion or freedom or service or whatever, read, uh, experiment, go on retreats, look for teachers who teach this very specifically. You know, when Sharon Salzberg comes to Spirit Rock, go, go on a retreat with her. Or Sylvia Borstein teaches a lot of loving kindness. Um, actually a lot of different people and really do an intense a week of loving kindness practice you learn a tremendous amount does that start to give you a sense okay and the one other thing I would say is don't assume that you haven't had the experience you may not recognize it yet which is true of most of the Dharma. That actually we've all had moments of freedom, of loving kindness, of compassion, of joy, of equanimity. Um, we, it's part of, the, of um, growing or maturing in the Dharma is seeing through the lens of the Dharma and being able to recognize what is already part of our nature. Loving kindness is part of your nature. Okay, Mindy likes to help me and she's very good at it. Thank you. Something that I was reminded this summer was that nobody said it was going to be easy. Uh-huh. Okay. And so all of your suggestions I absolutely uh-huh. take to heart. Right. And nobody said it Okay, Mindy's saying nobody said it was going to be easy. So that may be true. And so, you know, in starting to cultivate that kind of of, um, awareness, that overcomes the difficulties that you're enumerating. Got it. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's not always easy. Yeah, it's not always easy. Good, thank you. and so partly what that means is sometimes when we turn towards something like loving kindness the first thing that will come is its opposite right the first thing that will come is you know <laughs> anger frustration hatred can, can come the things that block it or, obsc- or a better way to say it is the things that obscure what's here will often show themselves and we think then we're not Doing that, we're not being skillful, but actually that's very skillful in in practice. Or the the part of what Mindy's saying is that the things I'm saying, she she likes what I'm saying, and she's saying, but it doesn't mean it's easy to recognize the loving kindness if we haven't before. And that's a little bit why I like to say experiment, play with it, uh, check it out. Um, and then talk to somebody, talk to a teacher or friends. What's your experience of loving kindness? How do you know? What is the experience? Is it the same for everybody, or is it actually a little different for everybody? Or 
So you're bringing up the point that in the meditation practice, when you do the formal meditation, you say phrases of loving kindness, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I be well, may I live with ease, or may you know, may you be safe, or may you be happy, or may you be well, or you may you live with ease. And sometimes and the question is, do you need to have the feeling or just go through the motions? And the answer is both. That you do the practice, and if you do the practice, the practice will do you. And by that I mean sometimes you'll say the phrases, when you do the formal loving-kindness phrases, you won't feel it. And it'll be like dry, or desert-like, or arid. And this is what I mean by then people think they're doing it wrong, but that's not wrong. That's what's here now. And in some sense that obscures the loving kindness. And, you, and we want to be present with that and kind to that, loving towards that. So in some sense you can't go wrong if we can, if we can have an attitude of loving kindness even when we don't feel loving kindness. And then the other thing, I, I just want to be careful here because we do it as a formal practice and then sometimes people get the idea, well, that's it. No, the practice is to invoke a state of heart that you know. What's the feeling of, you know, when you feel just friendly towards others? Even, even classically, that's a feeling of loving kindness. When you feel open-hearted, that's loving-kindness. But often we overlook what's actually here. We don't pay attention. And it's why mindfulness is so important. To begin to both get present and become aware of what it is we are. What it is we're made of. What, what shows itself that ordinarily we just either take for granted or we overlook. Or sometimes um, a lot of people have feelings of loving kindness through music. Certain kinds of music, certain music is very evocative of just the heart opens and just feeling uh, warm or friendly or kind. It's not just in the meditation. The skillful. Not just the skill, but to want something skillful rather than the unskillful. I and mean, for me, like it's not just like you know the ice cream is like you know neither skillful nor unskillful. But like if you if you eat too much, you're going to get a bellyache, and it's sort of like the the um, the result of whatever you do. And, and and for me, like I I'm a very slow learner. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, I mean, there's a thing with food, obviously, like bad, you know, French fries, you know, my eyes get big, and then I get, a, you know, stomachache afterwards, but, um, but like with right speech and wrong speech, for instance, and, you know, some of the habits like using wrong speech, 
So it's a little bit what I was suggesting when we see what's our deepest desire and then see is what we're doing and our other desires, do they support that or not? And that's that's the way I think about what you're talking about. And it's true, it can take a long time to really... It's kind of funny that way, actually. We actually know a lot more than we're able to enact. Like you know the french fries won't feel good. But it does seem to take a while for us as human beings, you know, 30 or 40 years or something, before we actually cannot, we can only have a little bit of the french fries. We're, we are, we're slow learners. I think that's good to put into the pot here. It's why, you know, it's why it's helpful to, you know, at least consider the Buddhist idea that Maybe there'll be a lot of lifetimes to learn what we need to learn. Well, that's why, that's what I was saying again about the moralism we tend to put on skillful and unskillful. That's just not there really so much in Buddhism. But Buddha was really interested in one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. What leads to the end of suffering? What leads to the end of suffering is skillful. What leads to more suffering is unskillful. And you know, it's not bad, it's just... You know, he said, they say in the text, what, the way it's put, it's, it's actually kind of beautiful. It said after his enlightenment, he was walking, doing walking meditation and sitting for seven days, kind of enjoying, enjoying himself, enjoying the fruit of his realization. And it said that he looked out with his omniscient eye and he scanned the world and he saw people wanting freedom and doing things that cause suffering and that he was touched by that, and it was one of the motivations to teach. And that's what I mean by we're slow, like you said, we, we, we are. We, we, a lot of the, the skillfulness we actually know, but our psychology seems to be such that we're, or maybe it's even more, it's, maybe it's more instinctual, we're creatures of habit. And so the certain habits change slowly. That's why the kindness is very important because the harshness that you were pointing at actually doesn't help us grow. Can you talk a little bit about setting an intention and the perseverance toward that? I find myself um, 
kind of caught, at least in my head, between very much of a Western, I'm going for it, mm-hmm. and a sense of, you know, when roadblocks <coughs> or when things come up, when to decide, well, <coughs> maybe that's not the intention that I should go for, or that I just need to persevere. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering from a, from a Buddhist perspective how. The, so the questions about intention and perseverance. And if there are roadblocks and it looks like, oh, maybe that's not the right way to go. Well, I mean, if we use the Buddha as a archetypal example, he made his intention to realize a freedom that nobody had realized before. And that at least everybody told him, oh, it doesn't exist even. And he had a lot of roadblocks and he persevered. But he also knew how to change course in midstream. Like he went one way, he became an ascetic. He practiced very ardently, very intensely, um, almost died. And then, you know, he was slow. He realized, oh, dying will not help me get realized. Right? And And it was really a big shift in the Dharma when he figured it out slowly that this was not the way. And then he changed course totally. Not totally, he didn't become a hedonist again. He'd already done that. But he, did, he found the middle way then. And so it's the obstacles aren't a problem. There's always, with whatever intention we have, there'll be obstacles. So it makes me wonder, why do you think there won't be obstacles? Or why do you... No, it's not that there won't be obstacles. It's, um, or that the obstacles... raise the... Uh, the ability to discern mm-hmm. whether this is an obstacle or whether this is an indication that I've turned the wrong way. Uh-huh. So how to discern um, <coughs> if something is an obstacle or it's just the wrong way? I don't know. <laughs> I think trial and error <laughs> is really a good thing, actually. I think we can't know in like, okay, here's the book, these are wrong and these are right. That's what we would like. We would like some kind of way, okay, here's the right, here's the wrong, here's the skillful, here's the unskillful. I don't think life really works like that. And I think it's a little more fun than that. So I, I, first of all, would support trusting your intention doing what you can to enact it and then seeing what happens and living with the reality and then really the question is about trusting yourself like will you know and, and how will we know if something's right or not well a good basis for knowing is being present a good basis for knowing is actually being here with our Um, um, uh, capacities of awareness of intelligence of creativity of sensitivity the the capacities that grow with meditation I mean one of the things that um, I think people like about meditation practice is it actually makes you more sensitive and that sensitivity becomes very important in um, 
responding to the world, responding to what the life brings us, is actually we can be more sensitive to it, and that sensitivity then can help guide us in how how to respond. Yeah. So, so wait, wait, let me get it. Richard Shankman was here talking about nirvana. So let me just say what you're saying a little so everybody can hear. So it's about nirvana. Is nirvana possible? The first discussion, you felt very like, okay, I can never... People in the room were feeling negative. Then, um, I'm forgetting your name. Yari. And so Yari saw Ajahn Amaro in Berkeley, and he also was talking about Nirvana, but he was talking about how easy it is, and everybody. Very achievable for any householder. Very achievable for any householder. For the first level, yeah. Right, for stream yeah, entry. Stream entry. Yeah, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder what your, if you have any comments about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, no, good question. Good question, Nirvana. Uh, um, that she was reading Ajahn Chah, who said we should always be thinking that we're moving towards Nirvana, we're going towards Nibbana or Nirvana. here's the tricky part and this is like uh, probably I shouldn't say this but I will Um, there's a lot of different definitions of what Nibbana or Nirvana is and it's true in Ajahn Chah's understanding it's actually a lot more accessible it's actually more workable, doable. He would say, if somebody came to the monastery, he would say, if you haven't achieved stream entry after six months, what are you doing here? If you talk to a Burmese Sayadaw, they would not say that. And they have a whole different definition of nirvana. So this is one of the tricky parts of talking at this level Um, because different people have different experiences of different nirvanas or nirvanas. And uh, so maybe the best way we can go is to start, is go back to the Buddha and what he said, which when he talked about nirvana, he talked about it as peace, as freedom from clinging. Mm. And so 
there is, there's also, um, I'll give you a third, so there's Ajahn Chah, right, which is just, and, and his practice was not basically meditation based. You meditated, but it was just living with your experience and letting go, letting go, letting go. And that letting go is it leads to Nibbana. Um, leads to stream entry, leads to seeing that, um, and I can't remember technically, I'll give you a couple, but technically there's a few attachments that are seen through. One is about the power of rites and rituals at the first level of stream entry. That one sees that rites and rituals do not lead to freedom. Another is seeing that the self is empty. And that's part of the first level of stream entry. And there's one more. I don't think I'm going to remember. Maybe I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember what it is. But, but then there's another, um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who is also a Thai forest teacher. He's got a beautiful little pamphlet. Uh, maybe I'll try to find and bring in, called Ordinary Nibbana. And he's talking about the moments of freedom. And that actually, he said, we would go crazy if we actually didn't have moments of freedom regularly. And what he's saying is similar to what I was saying about the loving kindness, that part of what we do is we overlook freedom, partly because it's so simple and because it's so ordinary. And so I'm just giving you a little context for the question and I do think freedom is possible. I tend to fall in the camp of both. Like I think it's possible for householders. I think it helps to do a certain amount of intensive meditation practice. I think that I found that very helpful personally uh, in terms of l l what letting go means and the depth of letting go, what's possible. But there are definitely householders who have practiced and never gone on retreat and freed. There's a beautiful um, treatise that I have somewhere from a woman, English woman, who worked with a Burmese teacher just by um, mail. And, it's, and the name of it is Freedom Freed. And she, she just went beautiful to read. It's very moving to read her experiences because she's very articulate as the letting go deepens and deepens. And um, as Ajahn Chah said, that sense of um, moving towards freedom, it's beautiful. It's just, uh, I f actually find it moving to hear it. And I think that's a lovely way to think about what we're doing. It's moving towards freedom. Thank you. Hi. I have to, I'm sorry, I apologize. I have to say one more thing. Because um, it's the moving towards freedom. It really, really caught my attention. Uh, 
you know, the, the Nibbana, the first stage, there's four stages of enlightenment in Theravada Buddhism. And the four stages begin with what's called stream entry. Um, um, but I'm reminded of something Trungpa Rinpoche said. Well, and Trungpa was kind of a crazy wisdom guy, and he could be quite off-putting. Uh, you know, like if, if the meeting was at 7, he might show up at 8.30 while everybody had been waiting for him. And um, one time, uh, and he, he drank a bit. <laughs> and he, could, he would come in drinking, have his vodka sometimes, or whatever it was, I can't remember. And um, it's true. And, um, and somebody was leaving who'd been there a while, and they were leave, clearly walking out after being a little irritated. And he said, you could leave. He said, you could leave. It's, he said, it's better if you don't start. But if you start, it's better to finish. And if you've really tapped into the Dharma, if you've started, it, there's a certain way you have joined a stream. And I don't mean the stream of, maybe you're not a stream enterer yet, but you're a stream enterer in a different way, that there's a stream of Dharma that you've stepped into and that will carry you. And it's actually not up to us when stream entry happens, when enlightenment happens. It's actually not up to us. But if we go into that stream, that lineage of men and women, of people, for uh, 2,600 years in the specific Buddhist stream, and really forever in the human stream, of people who want to understand and wake up and know what is the truth, that stream will carry you. It will carry you to the end. It's almost, it's like when the streams go to the rivers that go to the ocean, it's inevitable in that way. And I love that understanding that if we really, if we're touched by the Dharma and we give ourselves, it only goes in one direction, to freedom. Okay. So let me come back to Elizabeth. Sorry. So the difference between compassion and indulgence. Compassion means being kind to yourself when you indulge. <laughs> but but it means but compassion also means being willing to see clearly that we're indulging. You know that we just bought three chocolate with vanilla and banana and sugar cone and you know. But, but, you know, it, um, it doesn't mean we have to be mean to ourselves. And actually, the kindness, there's a kindness in seeing what's true. Uh, this is indulgence. And then stay present there. See what it feels like to indulge. See, see what, what is really being fed or satisfied by the indulgence. And, and I mean that quite seriously. Because... Pardon? I had some experience with those in my adults. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, the, 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 the harshness, it just doesn't help. 
It's not my experience, not, not what I'm teaching. And so compassion means seeing our foibles, seeing our inability to change something at times, and being kind to ourselves even with that. It just means something's unconscious, something's unknown, something's unclear still. If we're still indulging, it means we don't understand totally what's going on, and we're acting out of that, whether it's unconscious or instinctual or whatever it is. You know, if we're attached, quote, in some way, it's not helpful to be harsher with ourselves because we're attached. But see, well, what's actually happening here that we can't let go? You know, my koan these days, oh, I forgot to announce the Dharma Wheels bike ride, which is the end of September, where we're riding from Spirit Rock to Bayagiri. Um, and I've been doing a little training for it. And so my koan lately is, oh, how do you be totally relaxed while you're going 40 miles an hour downhill and you don't know what's coming around the curve? Right? How do you do that? How do you totally relax? And um, judging the non-relaxation is not, that's not helpful. But to start to pay attention and really be aware of what's actually happening as you're coming around the curve and there's a big bus coming on the other side of the road or whatever it might be, or there's gravel or there's whatever. That's helpful. And being kind to the tension that's in the body is much more helpful than judging the tension that's in the body in order to learn about relaxation. Can you say something about working with aversion? Working with aversion. What about it? What's the problem? (laughs) What's wrong with you? The, the version is your fault? Well, if a version arises, then it's my failing. Aha, uh-huh. okay. I've done something wrong, I've right. gone the wrong way. And then I think the opposite is true, too. When I feel open-heartedness, I think, ooh, I must be doing something right. Aha. Uh-huh. So, and that just creates this... Right. So, so you're, you're, you're judging it from a moralistic perspective. When she has a version, she thinks she's doing something wrong. When she feels open-hearted, she's doing something right. Um, what don't you like about your aversion? What's wrong with your aversion? It's, um, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. Okay, so... It's t- uncomfortable, I guess. Uh-huh. So uh, my... Uh, instruction would be my encouragement would be oh how can you get comfortable with being aversive you know what my what am I going to say right let it rip exactly (laughs) now let it rip doesn't mean acting on it it means letting the aversive feeling be here fully feel it be aversive inside I hate all these people and this place and this stuff and that chocolate ice cream that's ugh you know, feel that energy. There's a life to the energy. And if we try to cut off from our life, it doesn't work. But we can liberate that energy through awareness and mindfulness. And then maybe it'll just be clarity. 
oh, I actually, this is not the right ice cream for me. <laughs> right? Or these are not the right people for me to be with. Or I'm here, it's not what I want to do, but I'm going to do what I need to do. But it doesn't have to get um, projected out either, especially if you can start to bring it into awareness very fully, very fully. So your practice this week is to be aversive and be consciously aversive and kindly aversive, coming back to what we were just talking about with indulgence. Be kind towards your aversion. See what happens. See what that energy is. Because not just the thought, it's not just the feeling, it's a whole Mo, it's a whole life there. There's a lot of life. Well, you'll get caught a little bit. Don't worry about it too much. Don't be aversive to your aversion. Yeah, aversion to aversion is aversion. <laughs> and then see what happens if you start to allow it more fully. And yeah, you'll, you may get caught a little bit, but actually you'll get caught less. When we're, when we're pushing something away, it's, you know, it's stickier than when we open to it. All the way in back. Pardon? Okay. Candy? Andy. Andy aversion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andy aversion. And, and it's a friend. Uh-huh. And I offered him loving kindness. Oh, you know, Right. So you're taking a kind perspective towards something and it and the actually the the attachment or I'm going to use a slightly different word, it's a psychological word, but the cathexis to the aversion relaxes. And that's freedom. Right. It's alive. Uh-huh. Great. Great. Last one. I like to also to share, maybe have a comment. <coughs> um, I'm studying physiology and I find that it dovetails really well with my meditation. And as I am learning more and more about the complexity of the body and how it works and how amazing it is. Mm-hmm. Right, when it's, when it's functioning.
So, so let me just say, um, summarize, because let's wait a second. So, studying physiology, seeing that the body is pretty amazing and that it functions on its own uh, quite well when there's a state of wellness, wholeness, and that even at times, often when it's not, it will repair itself, that we don't have to do it exactly, okay? And that the brain gets in the way, or there's a contrast between the brain and the body, you're saying. Uh-huh. Well, and what I find that I'm trying to do is to just allow my mind really to be like my body. Uh-huh. Just, just, just leave it alone for a minute. Uh-huh. And um, not to try and interject all of these things that I feel I have to do. Uh-huh. Um, and so you're trying to discern when is it skillful to use your mind and when isn't it skillful to use your mind? Yeah, but also, you know, I, I mean, when I, when I go out into nature, I was thinking of this bird all the time that I saw maybe three or four weeks ago. It was a bird. And it, was, it alighted on a branch and it was just vibrating and chirping. Mm-hmm. And it was so, you know, I got to watch its body just right. alive. Yeah. Like you. I am. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, the body can teach us a lot about how to just be. And and that actually the mind can learn how to be also. And part of the training of uh, mindfulness and samadhi is to learn how to relax the mind so that it can function from also a non-doing place that you're pointing at. And that is also possible. It's beautiful, the mind. And generally, it's very close to the body. <laughs> Let, let's sit for a minute. We need to end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.